Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this morning as we come to your word. And uh, God, we ask that you would remove any distractions that are clouding our minds, stress of work, anxiety, difficult relationships, a hard week, whatever it may be, that you would enable us just to center our attention on the truth and the beauty and the hope that we find in your word in particular as we look at our confession and our belief that you will return and make all things new and we will rise just as you have risen, Christ, from the dead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you've been with us, you know that we've been going through this series entitled The Good Life and we've kind of like dialed into one chapter here over the past couple weeks. So we moved through the first few chapters, and then three weeks ago, we began to park in chapter four, because chapter four is where the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter to a church in the city of Thessalonica, he begins to get micro. He begins to get very specific about the things that he wants to encourage and to challenge in them. You see, Paul and his companions, Silvanus and Timothy, founded this church, and then they had to leave. And between that period of time where Paul founds the church and he writes this letter, Timothy has gone back to visit. And when he's visited the church, he's kind of gathered intel and information to see how they're doing, what's happening in the life of their church, what are they struggling with, what are the lies that they're believing, where do they need more encouragement because they're living out their faith authentically. And so Paul writes this very uh, intentional letter to them because he knows what's happening. And in chapter 4, he addresses these specific issues. And three weeks ago, we saw that he addressed the issue of sexual immorality, that he discussed what it looks like to trust and to believe God's plan for your sexuality. And then last week, he looks at work because they were struggling with work. As many of their jobs are being affected because they became Christians, maybe they were laid off, maybe people don't want to do business with them anymore. And so Paul begins to outline what a, a godly perspective of work looks like, that God is pro-work. There's dignity in work, but your identity should not be wrapped up in your work. Rather, it should be wrapped up in Christ. And so he, he speaks about what it looks like to do work that matters. And this week, he is going to talk about grief. He's going to discuss with the church, how do you cope with grief, overwhelming grief at the loss of loved ones and at the reality and the questions around death. You see, this church that is growing and this church has uh, been made famous in their region, in their city, and really the known world is, is not without much suffering because they are living out their faith authentically. And so, therefore, many of them are being persecuted and many of them are losing their lives because of their faith. And so the church is having a really hard time understanding how do we cope with grief? We are losing friends and family members uh, not to old age, though that is difficult in and of itself, but at a very young age, they're being martyred and they're being killed. How do we deal with that? What do we believe about death? What do we believe about grief? And so Paul writes in this section to speak about the second coming of Jesus Christ because he wants them to understand that what you believe about Jesus's return affects how you actually live in the present, how you cope with grief. It changes your perspective on persecution, on death, and what it looks like to live a life honoring God despite the trials and the barriers you may face. You know, when we think about death, it's a question that we think about often, and we are all people that have 
grieved many times in our lives. Many of you are grieving now. We grieve at the loss of loved ones. When we're facing suffering and trials, we become overwhelmed with grief at times. And it really challenges our hope. There's a, a very famous song, many of you know, by John Lennon called Imagine. And he is kind of giving this idea of how he copes with grief and suffering and trials. And here's what he says. He says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. So what he's saying is, I want you to imagine. You're struggling with grief. You're facing trials. You're in suffering. You have questions about death and what happens after death. Stop worrying. Just imagine no heaven, no hell. Just like live for today. That's the answer that he gives. There's a, a bus that goes around England. It's, it's very famous. Uh, there's many of them actually have this tagline on it. And here's what it says. Check the screen out. It says, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. It's assuming that we're people that worry, right? We're full of worry. We, we grieve. We have questions about what happens after death. And this bus, many buses like it, say, listen, there's probably not a God. So just relax. Just relax and enjoy your life. This has to be, along with John Lennon's song, one of the most elitist statements of all time, right? If you live like an, like an average modern life, so you have a decent job, you are able to pay your bills for the most part, you, you have shelter over your head, you're pretty comfortable, you have an AC unit, especially living in Miami so you can stay cool. When it's supposed to be cool now, guys, it's November, but it's still hot. You have a refrigerator that can keep your food cold, and you have food that you can eat. You have a TV that you can relax and watch. Maybe you have a Netflix subscription so you can unwind after a long day. You have a car, or you have the ability to use public transportation. You live like an average modern American life. This statement and the song by John Lennon, you may think it has merit. You're right. I have a lot to be grateful for. I need to stop worrying and just enjoy my life. Because you believe yourself to have the ability to enjoy your life. But see, the majority of the people in the world, this is the most ridiculous statement ever. You mean stop worrying and enjoy my life? I have no idea where I'm going to get food from. I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I'm fearful that I'm going to lose my life because of my faith or because of the place in which I live. Many people in America are looking at this statement saying, are you, are you serious? I'm wondering if I'm going to get evicted. I'm wondering if the power is going to get turned off. I'm pretty sure I'm going to lose my job, and then I have no idea what I'm going to do. What do you mean stop worrying and enjoy my life? It's such an elitist statement. You see, for many people, God and the afterlife and faith is an intellectual discussion point to debate. But for the majority of the people, God is something to seriously consider and to pursue because God is hope. Because without God, life is just cruel. It's just cruel. It's full of suffering and grief. And so Paul wants to address this to those that are suffering and are grieving and are saying, I, I don't think I just have the ability in and of myself to just enjoy my life because I just think positively and stop worrying about the reality of God. 
Now, before we jump in, I want to say two things, and it's very important because if I don't say these two things, you're probably going to get be thinking about this the entire sermon. I don't want that to happen. I mentioned to you that we're going to be discussing the second coming of Christ, the return of Jesus. And the first thing I want to let you know is that we're talking about the second coming, not heaven. This is really important distinction. Heaven and the second coming, different. You see, we, we believe as Christians in the reality of heaven, right? Paul himself writes to the Philippian church and he says that when you die, you're united with Christ. When you die, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, you're united to him in heaven. Jesus himself, when he's on the cross, the thief next to him, he, he, he professes faith in the reality of who Jesus is. And Jesus says famously, today, you're gonna be with me in paradise. You're gonna be with me in heaven. You see, the Christian faith teaches that if you believe by grace through faith in the reality of Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God, that he lived a perfect life for you, that he died on the cross for your sins, he was buried and he came back forth in bodily resurrection, that through faith by the grace of God, when you die, you will be united with Christ. You'll be in heaven. But that's not the end of the story in the Christian faith. We believe that Jesus is going to return. Jesus himself promises us that he's going to return. And when he returns, oftentimes it's called the day of judgment, the second coming of Christ, he is going to make all things new. He's going to restore everything and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And so I need to make sure that you understand we're talking about the second coming, the very end of history, not the reality of heaven for those of us of faith that pass on and die now. Secondly, and this is really important, I'm not going to be discussing end times theological positions. Some of you are really upset about that because it's a hobby horse. You love it. I remember growing up and, and it's being in church and I really didn't even know what I believed about faith, but I loved it when people talked about Revelation because it was like reading a fantasy novel. There's like so many different opinions and I was like, what's going to happen? And what about the dragon? And what about, all? we're not going to talk about that this morning. We do not have the time. We'll be here all day long. I don't have enough caffeine in me to do it either. So we're going to save that for other conversations, especially in light of Paul is not wanting to get into the nuances of the second coming of Christ. Instead, he wants to talk about the nature and the reality of it. He wants them to see the hope that is found in confessing that Christ is going to return. And so let's jump into verse 13. Here's what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. That little phrase there, those who are asleep, is a euphemism for those who have died. You see it all throughout Scripture, those who have fallen asleep, those who are asleep. It's just another way of saying those who have died. And it's not only found in scripture, it's found in Greek literature and Latin literature. It was just a common reference that people used. It's like how we say, so-and-so has passed on, has passed away. It's just another way of saying those who have died. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, church, about those who have died so that you don't grieve like those who have no hope. One of the things that's important to see here is that Paul is not prohibiting grief. He's not saying that grief is wrong. In fact, all throughout scripture, we see that it's important to grieve, that we're people that grieve. Jesus tells us that he was full of sorrow 
We see the church in Jerusalem grieving when Stephen is martyred. Paul himself in the book of Romans says that we're to weep with those who weep or grieve with those who grieve. See, he's not prohibiting grief, but what he's saying is, I don't want you to be overwhelmed with grief where it clouds out the hope that you have in your faith at the return of Christ. I don't want you to be overwhelmed by it. Because those of the culture that do not claim faith in Christ and his return, they may claim to have hope, but their hope is weak. It's uncertain. It's wishful hope. And Paul wants to say that you do not have wishful hope. You know, one of the prominent philosophers of the day and age in the city of Thessalonica and really in the region was Seneca. He's a Stoic philosopher. Many people are reading him now because there's a resurgence of Stoicism in our culture. But he says this, hope is an uncertain good. This is what most people believe, like hope is uncertain. Hope is wishful. So what happens at death? What happens to those that that fall asleep, that pass on? It's uncertain. It's wishful. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to think like that because your faith compels you to believe something different. In fact, hope was so wishful in this culture that there were things called consolation letters that were written that would be distributed to different people to help bring some sense of hope when they're thinking about death or they're grieving over the loss of a loved one, of a friend. And these consolation letters would have six characteristics that people would try to believe and to wrap their mind around to, to enable them to cope with grief. And here are the, the six characteristics. First is that death is inevitable. The second is that death is the fate of all, regardless of your class, your social status, everybody dies. The third is that the person's memory and honor will live on. So they're going to live on in the present, their memory and their honor. The fourth is that death releases one from the evils of life. The fifth is that a funeral is a great honor to those who have fallen asleep, have passed on. And death is non-existence or a happier state of existence. So this would have been distributed to everybody and people would have believed in this. Right? You notice the first two are reminders. It's death is inevitable. Everybody dies. And then number three and number five are really action points for those that are, are still alive, right? Okay, so I'm going to keep the person's memory and honor alive, and we're going to prepare a great funeral to honor them. But number four and number six are wishful. Like, I really hope that death releases them from the evils and the suffering of this life, and I really hope that death is either non-existence or a happier state of existence. You know, we don't have consolation letters that are passed around. You don't receive one in the mail that has these six things on it. But we have consolation letters, right? On Instagram, when you type in Google, Google's like the ultimate consolation letter. We look up everything on Google. How many of you have looked up like a, a weird uh, illness that you're feeling? Like, I have a headache. What is that? You Google it and you're like, oh no, it's terrifying. <laughs> We look up on Google, how do I cope with grief? What do I believe about death? And you're going to see things like this, right? Death is inevitable. Everybody dies. But their memory and their honor will live on. We even speak like that, right? When people pass away, we say, 
We're not going to forget them. We start organizations in their honor. We, we hold funerals and we think about specifics, how to honor them. These are all really good things. And number four and six as well, we, we speak in a way when people have passed on, we say, well, they're no longer suffering. They're no longer in pain. And we hope, culturally speaking, that they're in a happier place. They're in a better place. Everything that they were dealing with is, is now gone and, and things are good. You see, we believe these things. And Paul wants to say to the church who's struggling with this because it seems uncertain. Hope is an uncertain good. It's wishful. And Paul wants to say we do not have wishful hope. We are not uncertain about what happens at death for those who trust in faith in Christ. Do not think like that because your faith is rooted in the resurrection. Your faith is rooted in the resurrection of Christ, and therefore you have secure future hope. Look what he says in verse 14. For since we believe, here's why we have secure hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It sounds a lot like a creed. We recited earlier the Nicene Creed. Many scholars think that Paul is actually referencing a creed that the church would have read aloud together. And he's saying, I want you to remember that because we believe that Jesus has died and rose again, that God will bring those who have died with him. They will rise themselves. Paul is essentially saying to them, how do you cope with grief? Remember what you confess. Remember what you believe. He writes a letter to a church in the city of Corinth, and he has this entire chapter in chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians, and he talks extensively about the resurrection. And there's this one little excerpt I want to read for you. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, that's the man that brought about death all the way in Genesis, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's what Paul is saying. For everyone that believes in the death and the resurrection of Christ, you can know for certain, you can feel secure in the reality that upon death there will be a resurrection for you. It's not wishful. It's not like, I don't know what death brings, maybe non-existence, maybe a happier state of being. I don't know. No, Paul is saying that Jesus is going to return and all of those who are dead in Christ will rise with him because the belief in the resurrection is intimately tied to our belief that we as well will rise because we're united to Christ. The same power that rose Christ from the dead lives where? In us. We will rise. He's wanting the church to remember we don't have a wishful hope. The, re the way that we cope with grief is by remembering our confession. Because what you confess affects the way that you live. What you believe affects how you live and how you deal with grief and how you help and come alongside others who are grieving and how you live your life when the reality of death is inevitable. 
But the question that obviously many of us are asking and, and the church itself was asking, okay, but like what is the, the second coming of Christ like? Like what, what's going to happen? How does that work? So Paul says this in verse 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. What he's referencing here of the return of Christ is called the parousia. It's the second coming of Christ. And this term was also used in in other places. Uh, Cities would uh, await a parousia of a, a divine emperor or a divine um, person that was going to come to the city. So they would they'd be in the city, preparing the city, waiting for this person, an emperor or a leader that they have ascribed divinity to, for that person to come visit them, to come to the city. It was called a parousia. They're waiting for it. And Paul is saying here, I want you to understand the nature of the parousia of Christ, what it looks like when Christ will return, will he'll come back to his city, not one city, but his entire creation, the whole earth. He's saying that he will descend from heaven. The king of kings will come down and descend from heaven, and there'll be a loud cry like a trumpet, like the voice of an archangel. What he's saying here is that everyone is going to hear it. It is not as if Jesus is going to return to one city, and only those people know, or one area, and only those people know. It's going to be the trumpet of God. It is going to be like the voice of an archangel, and everyone's going to know Jesus has returned. The end of the story is almost complete. And then he says, what is going to happen when Jesus returns is the dead in Christ will rise. Notice he doesn't say all of the dead will rise at this point. He says the dead in Christ. Those who prior to death have placed their faith in Christ, whether it was five minutes ago, five months ago, five years ago, or 5,000 years ago, will rise. The dead in Christ will rise, and they will meet with those who are alive at the return of Christ, and together they will meet Jesus. It says they will meet Jesus in the clouds, and this is where a lot of times there's always theological discussions, and we're not going to jump into that. I promised you we're not going to jump into that today. But what it is a reference to is actually a passage in Daniel, and Daniel speaks about the clouds of heaven and the Son of Man, the Son of God coming down. And the point is, is that there'll be a meeting place. Not that we'll literally like be in the clouds with Jesus, but that the dead in Christ and those who are alive at the return of Christ will meet Jesus as he's coming down from heaven. And then he says one of the most encouraging parts of this entire passage. He says, so we will always be with the Lord. Like this, it's over. We are walking into eternity arm in arm with those who have passed away before us. And we will meet the Lord together for eternity. A few things I want you to notice here that I think are really important. This is our confession. And it affects the way that you live now. And it affects how you cope with grief. Notice, this, there is no picture of individual souls escaping off into another dimension. There's no, individual, there's no individuality here of just like we're escaping off into another dimension. 
there, there's no picture here. We're going to go up um, and sit on some clouds with big smiles and angel wings and harps. It's not here either. We're not just becoming forms of energy. They're going to go into some like energy state that's somehow blissful. What does he say? Jesus Christ is going to come down. The Lord of heaven is coming down here. Heaven is coming down. Jesus is coming down. The book of Revelation speaks about the parousia, the second coming of Christ. It says the holy city of God is going to come down to earth. Remember what Jesus teaches us to pray? He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why does he tell us to pray like that? Because you see, the end of God's story is that heaven, the kingdom of God, the reality of God's presence is coming down. The holy city of God is coming down to earth. The kingdom is coming here. And the question is, like, what, what does all this mean? How does this affect how you live and, and how you cope with grief. You see, it reminds us that our future hope is not only secure because of our belief in the resurrection of Christ, but it's living. We have a living hope. We're not going to go to some energy field. We're not going to go be sitting, we're not going to sit on clouds and play harps. We are going to be living, enjoying the life that God has meant for us to, to enjoy that we've corrupted with sin. A life together, a life of dancing and of hugging and of spending time together and of enjoying one another. A life that is in the city of God without sin. You see, we will rise like Christ with bodies. Speaking of a bodily resurrection, and we will enjoy relationship, perfect relationship with our creator and with each other one of the great passages in scripture is that Jesus, after he comes back from the dead and he's resurrected, he meets the disciples on the beach in the morning for breakfast, and he eats fish. And I always thought it was weird that he eats fish in the morning. Maybe some of you eat fish. I just think that's peculiar, but I guess that was the custom. It's eating fish on the beach in the morning in his resurrected body. You see, Jesus wasn't a ghost when he came back from the dead wasn't an imagination, a hallucination. He physically rose, and because we believe in the physical resurrection of Christ, we too will, at the parousia, at the second coming of Christ, we will rise as the holy city of God of when heaven comes down to earth. You see, what that reminds us is that our hope is living because our eternal destination is here. It's here on earth. It's not as if when Jesus returns, all of a sudden he's just going to destroy everything here and blow up the earth and make a new one. No, God is a God that restores things. He makes things new. That's Jesus' promise. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. I'm going to restore. I'm going to redeem. The earth itself is groaning for its redemption. You see, our eternal destination where we are living with one another in perfect relationship with God and each other, without sin, without tears, without suffering, with no more grief. That's happening here. Our hope is living. It is secure, and it is living. 
And Paul says, therefore, we should encourage each other with these words. Should encourage you. Not only give you something to confess about the reality of death and what you believe, but enable you not to be overwhelmed with grief where it clouds out hope, but enable you to grieve the way that God has intended for you to grieve because what you believe about the future affects your present. It affects how you live in the present. Viktor Frankl, who's a Holocaust survivor and he's an author, he said, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. You know, when you look back, a lot of the, the black spiritual songs that were, that were sung during the slavery period, one of the things that you notice is that they're full of future hope in the midst of great suffering and injustice and oppression, full of future hope. You know the song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Listen to what it, some of the lyrics of the song. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. If you get there before I do, tell all my friends I'm coming to. Future hope in the midst of great grief and trials and oppression, because what you believe about the future affects how you live in the present. This is why so many people in the first few centuries of the church came to faith in Christ, because they looked at Christians, Christians like this church in Thessalonica, that didn't grieve with no hope. They believed in a secure future hope that was living because of their belief in the resurrection of Christ. And the reality of where they would spend eternity with one another and with Christ. You see, when this pierces your soul, when you believe this, when you confess this, that your hope is living and it's secure, it changes how you live. It changes how you cope with grief. It changes what you believe about death. It changes your fear of death. It changes everything about you because the worst evils that you face in this life are but a passing thing. Because your eternal destination is full of beauty and joy. It's perfect. And we're to encourage one another with these words. This is our confession that Jesus is coming back and we will rise to with him. And as we wait, we wait expectantly. We are to wait expectantly. You know, it, the, the different cities that would wait a parousia of a divine a leader or emperor that they regarded as divine, they would wait expectantly for that person to return. They didn't just sit there in the city and like, I don't know when they're going to show up, they're going to show up. They waited expectantly. What they would do is they would begin to prepare the city. So they would hold banquets and spend time with one another and, and talk about how they're so excited about the return of this divine emperor. They would begin to go out throughout the city and to, to make the city look beautiful and to engage in it. They would begin to give speeches about the emperor that was coming with divine honor and, and speak about them. They would begin to donate to the temple and they would bring sacrifices. They wanted the city to be prepared for the return of this divine emperor. And Jesus is the divine who's coming down. And the parousia that we are awaiting the second coming of Christ does not allow us the ability just to sit and just wait. Jesus may not return in our lifetime or he may return in our lifetime. We don't know the hour or the day, but we're to wait expectantly. And he's returning. And we've been called to prepare the city, 
to engage in the city and to beautify the city and to care for the city. We've been called to hold banquets. We hold a banquet every Sunday right here. We come together with one another and we give honor and worship and we wait expectantly for his return. You listen to speeches. We call them sermons about the, the beauty and the reality of Jesus Christ, but not only here, you yourself are also to give speeches when opportunities present itself about the glory and the honor of Jesus who will return. We're to donate our time and our talent and our treasure to the work of his church as bringing more people into faith and reality of who he is. We don't bring actual sacrifices, but we ourselves are a living sacrifice of worship. You see, we wait expectantly because we are ambassadors declaring that there is a future hope that is secure and is living to a world who is overwhelmed with grief and is looking at hope as an uncertain good. We don't have that. So may we encourage each other with these words and may we also declare these words to others who need to hear the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, we're so thankful that you have made known to us the reality of who you are, the beauty of who you are. May we trust in your grace. Lord, would you not allow us to be overwhelmed with grief, but would we claim to a hope in you that is secure and that is living? Would it change the way that we live? Would it change the way that we care for others who are grieving? Would we be people that wait expectantly to prepare your city? Prepare your city for your return. Though we do not know the hour or the day, we know you are coming back. We thank you for your grace that we can claim this truth as our promise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.